Michael, we have we're both big fans of Jacob Siegel's writing and his uh, thinking, and he just dropped this um, blockbuster piece about the censorship industrial complex he's been working on for several years now. Um, do you want to just sum up what what Jacob's argument is, and then we'll we'll talk to him and ask ask him some questions? Yeah, absolutely. And we put a link to this article. We'll put a link to it in the article that accompanies this podcast. This is maybe the most significant summary of the censorship industrial complex yet written. I had the same experience when I read it that Matt Taibbi described having on his blog, which was like almost a sense of relief that somebody had done it. You know, when you read pieces like this that are in your space, sometimes you can feel competitive, like, oh my gosh, I wish I had written that. Or, But there was a way in which we've all written so much, I think to see this piece connect so many dots came as like a real relief to us. So this is a piece that really connects the so-called anti-disinformation campaigns that the U.S. government was was running in the war on terrorism to Russiagate and the attempt to convince Americans that Trump was a Russian asset, mostly because Putin had apparently hired prostitutes to urinate on him in a bedroom, and there was a memo about it or a videotape or something. And the ways in which the intelligence community, retired intelligence officials used Russia and the threat of Russian disinformation to discredit not just Trump, but really all of his supporters. And then it takes you all the way through COVID. I think it's a 12-part article, so it's very long. It's almost like a small book. Um, but it takes you all the way part. through 13 parts. It takes you all the way through COVID. So you really have a sweeping view. Plus, of course, he's also going to be referencing, I believe there's a lot of stuff about how this emerges after World War II used to call it psychological operations, psyops, part of U.S. government efforts to overthrow foreign governments, or what's sometimes called hybrid warfare, meaning kinetic, you know, physical out there in the world warfare, plus also information warfare, which includes, you know, controlling newspapers and PR. So this is just a really outstanding, and also I should just add, delightfully written, fun to read some writers that have good things to say, but nonetheless make you work really hard to read something. This is a piece that's really well edited and really polished and really well done, that it's a pleasure to read. I've read it twice now. Strongly encourage everybody to read it. And we're super excited to actually have Jacob here to, to interview him about his piece. One thing I liked about your piece was it's wrapping up with this uh, idea of this ruling class, which it sounds like is what you're talking about. Like, you know, on the one hand, we can look at this as these various different agencies. You've got these agencies within the government. You've got these NGOs. You've got these universities, um, departments. You've got these um, these tech plat these tech platforms and the executives therein. Um, but they're all moving from one to the to the other. And really, what you're looking at when you just zoom out a little bit is just this kind of elite cadre of people who rotate through all of these doors and who it doesn't really matter if they're at CISA or the Stanford Internet Observatory or the top ranks of Twitter. You know, they're almost interchangeable because it just seems like it's just one ruling class monolith operating on the rest of the population. One of the features of the... the um you know, the counter disinformation complex is the way in which the um, CIA and intelligence agency and NGO role is both deliberately organizationally blurred. And also, I think, 
um, actually genuinely blurred in terms of the affect from each informing the others. So the CIA officers today sound more like NGO workers than at any, or, you know, sort of knowledge economy NGO workers than at any other time uh, I'm aware of. And the NGO people, um, especially the progressive NGO people, seem to have adopted the mores and habits of CIA um, case officers. So, yeah, though, I was going to say, too, I mean, I, I think that um, there's a difference between Yoel Roth and Rene DiResta. They might be in the same social class, but Rene DiResta, from the minute that I started reading her stuff, came across to me like a member of the intelligence community. I'm not saying she kept working for CIA after she was CIA fellow. I can't prove that. And I'm not going to claim that, but it is striking the difference in the language that she would use. If you just go read her 2018 Senate testimony, the, the jargon, the kind of language or kind of way of speaking with other people, it always struck me as sounding like something I would expect to hear from a U.S. government senior intelligence official. Whereas Yul Roth is, sounds like a Bay Area progressive. Like, there's a real difference there. Like, I know Bay Area progressives very well um, and how they talk and the culture. It's, it's just what I, we, we live in it. It's like the soup, you know, we've been in for so long. Listening to her talk did not strike me like a Bay Area progressive. I think, though, to Jacob's point, she's doing, there's very specific things she's doing in her, in her articles and appearances and reports and her testimonies. And it really only struck me as I was finishing this article, which is that they're they're making a clear argument to progressives and to Democrats. And one of the things that struck me is this thing of harm. We've been talking a lot about how they say we have to censor the they say they don't say we have to censor. We have to, uh, you know, um, counter the disinformation that causes real world harm. There's a lot of real world harm. And it was the weirdest thing. So I'm seeing her listening to her videos say that. And then I testify in front of Congress twice now. And every single time, the, the, one of the first things the Democrats say is they go, obviously, we have to prevent real world harm. It's all about real world harm. Well, harm is the fundamental progressive value, according to social psychologist Jonathan Haidt and many others. And I think we all just know in our experience, like preventing harm, preventing harm against trans people. You know, preventing harm from climate change, preventing harm from online disinformation, preventing harm, preventing harm, preventing harm. Um, and notably, I mean, I think it's so there's that. But then I think also to Jacob, your, you know, to your point, also this thing about the intelligence community. She's also saying this is not a First Amendment issue. This is just about cybersecurity. This is just about. Uh, an info war. And that's the stuff where I'm like, that does not sound like a progressive at all. So I do think there's a sort of a marrying with language of these two communities. Yeah. And maybe it's possible that in different contexts, um, she's able to uh, sort of strike different postures because the original version of the tablet essay, which was just published last week and whatever, you know, last week of March, 2023, I I believe that I turned in the first version of that piece 
in like November, 2020. And I had already been working on it. And, and then I, you know, just to be clear, I haven't been working on it continuously this whole time. And, um, but it was a massive sprawling piece in November of 2020. I think it was over. The funny thing is it was over 10,000 words even then. And, but like 8,000 of those words are gone. There is a substantial chunk of it though, probably, you know, at least, I don't know, two to 3,000 words, which is, you know, it's like the length of a reasonably uh, long essay in its own right that's from that original draft from 2020. But I bring it up because I had a section on Rene Duresta in the original version of this. And specifically, she had written an essay for a site called Ribbon Form. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a, a sort of... Um, I don't know how I would put it. It's a kind of like uh, tech, smart tech, um, uh, you know, less wrong, the sort of like rationalist, um, yeah. somewhere between Infected less altruism. wrong. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere, but but the more intellectual, less um, scam artist side of that, let's say, yeah. just <laughs> given what's been in the news lately, but somewhere between less wrong and then... Um, uh, you know, a, a kind of tech philosophizing is anyway, I don't want to disparage the site because they've run some interesting stuff over the years, but she had a piece on ribbon farm. I believe it ran in 2016 or 2017 making the case. I think it used the Magano line metaphor, but making the case for an information war essentially. And, and uh, the need to um, the need to, evolve out of or more strictly speaking abandon uh which he declared to be antiquated principles of free speech in the name of preventing the harm of disinformation essentially and i read that at the time as a kind of um i read that at the time as as the sort of the intellectual gloss that i was not shocked to find from a quasi, you know, government adjacent tech intelligentsia, something like that. I definitely, you know, just to be clear, I didn't read it at the time and think, ah, this is a CIA person. Um, but I, I, looking back on it, it's quite interesting because it had adopted both progressive language and Silicon Valley language to some extent to make this case very early to establish some of these tropes, you know, to put these tropes out in, in what was a smaller environment at the time, this more sort of insular tech world, tech intellectual uh, group. But that was my early experience with her. And then the name, you know, and then as I was researching this stuff, she just came up over and over again. So Jacob, you started this thing in, or you started probably before 2020 or maybe in 2020 when you started working on this. Obviously, that was like an entire lifetime ago when it comes to to the subject matter. Um, wait, you know, years before the Twitter files revelations, um, probably a time when there was, you know, it was the summer of Black Lives Matter and COVID-19 and all that stuff popping off. And the the uh, obviously the election, election integrity project is hard at work. Um, things have tell, can you just describe what the iteration was over those years? I mean, imagine that like the story just 
kept unfolding. So you just had to continue to do reporting. Is that why it took three years? Uh, no, I would say that I felt like it passed me by and was crushingly depressed for a while. And I felt like <laughs> I'd had the biggest story in the world and I let it go. I mean, I, mm. I just, you know, it was on me. I just, well, to some extent it was on me. I, I couldn't pull it off. I had a lot of the material, but the simplest explanation for why it didn't work then and it works now is the Twitter files. It wasn't, I couldn't make the argument that I was trying to make and present this sort of unifying theory because in some sense the structure was, I didn't have the 13 ways of looking at disinformation, which I think only popped into my head about two months ago, just because I love Wallace Stevens and I've always loved that poem. And it just occurred to me, oh, I could do it. Like, like it would just allow me to write it if I just use this structure. So I didn't have that. But it had many of the same elements and it had the same grand sweep and the sort of grand unifying theory aspect to it, because that was the only way. Look, the, the thing about the disinformation complex is that it is an attempt to assume the contours of reality. Right? That, that's what these people are trying to do. They're trying to control and define the contours of reality in a sense that is more bumbling, but no less grandiose than that suggests. And so I couldn't figure out a way to write it that didn't have some grandiosity to it. And I guess because of that, and because I didn't have the particulars of the Twitter files, and especially the you know, really the Hamilton 68 stuff for me sort of broke it open because I had been thinking about Clint Watts's role for a long time. And um, so when I wrote the first draft, you know, tablets, a, a wonderful place to work. And they were, they tried to work with me on it, but I could tell that they, it just didn't quite work. They didn't, um, they, nobody could tell me exactly what it was missing, but it was missing something at the time. And I knew that and they knew that. And uh, then life got in the way and, um, you know, my son was born and, and, um, and then the Twitter files started. And at some point, and I got over the, the genuinely, you know, just like real heartache about this. It, it had really um, torn me up inside because I felt like I blew it. And mm -hmm. uh, then the Twitter files happened and I, I realized, yeah. okay, I can give this another shot. And I did. I love that story, Jacob, so much because uh, just setting aside the content of it as a writer, um, I can't tell you how many of things that I actually, including things that I'm proud of, or maybe think maybe more things I'm proud of, including, you know, you describing this amazing article you've done is how much of it is just, um, it doesn't come out the way you think it will. It doesn't come out when you think it will. And some external event needs to happen for it to actually be finished. Um, that was the case for my first book on the environment and I think it's just almost a really important lesson for I for like particularly younger writers, but um, really anybody, which is that, um, you know, sometimes your the writer's block is not it's not in you. It's actually in the world. 
you know, and that you needed the Twitter files, you needed to understand what's going on with Clint Watts. It's interesting because your piece starts with this very specific disinformation campaign, which was the mislabeling of legitimate Twitter users as Russian bots. But you're, the big prey for you is a kind of new form of governmentality, if I'm using that word right. I mean, for me, it comes to like thinkers like Michel Foucault or, or like Max Weber or even Karl Marx. You're trying to understand how the elites can exercise control over the masses. So I was just kind of taking yes. like, that's the big prey here. And so I have a million questions a little bit about you and your own education and your theoretical chops, because you clearly, I think, I think for a lot of our readers, um, and both Lane and I come from, you know, we spent a fair amount of time in theory, as we used to call it in the 90s, you know, um, and you have some serious th theory chops. I think a lot of our readers, you know, and a lot and most people are more like, um, like, who's the bad guy? you know, and what's the bad thing they did. And we always keep that in there. But it seems like you really think it's important for people to see this as a kind of new way of being, a new historical epic, a new form of state power, a new form of societal control. Um, and I'm curious about that and, and where that comes from and where you sort of, I mean, I'm assuming this, you're very conscious of wanting to do that and not for this to just be a kind of litany of, bad deeds by government and government officials and government contractors. I am conscious of that. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I would agree with almost everything um, in that characterization, but um, there, I don't have, uh, I don't have the background or the chops to be overly rigorous with the theory. I just, I search around until I have the feeling that it's right. The second thing I would say is that I felt and I had been writing about years before disinformation, I was writing about uh, stuff like Google smart cities. And I was writing about what I felt to be this sort of siren song of big data and the, and the ways in which the formulations of big data were inducing people to voluntarily give up their political sovereignty because they were supposed to get optimization back. So there was a neighborhood in Toronto called Keyside on the waterfront in Toronto. And I went up there and I visited it and I had planned to do this big story about uh, Google's subsidiary of Google. It was the smart city division was going to completely take over a micro neighborhood in Toronto. And, I, you know, basically it was going to be a fully surveilled, fully optimized, you know, cameras inside your house so that they could dispatch the drones to pick up your garbage before you had even thought to throw out your garbage because they knew that if you were eating dinner at nine o'clock by 920, you would be dropping the cartons down the garbage chute. So it was this sort of fully surveilled, fully optimized predictive analysis based neighborhood and what and I wrote a sort of small piece that didn't really get any attention or any notice except for by the philosopher Matthew Crawford whose thinking was very similar to mine on these things I think and and who's written some really brilliant stuff about this um, and I saw that as a very very profound and fundamental change in the nature of 
political sovereignty. You know, that in other words, if you're in a normal city, I, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn in New York, right? And if you're in a normal city, you think to yourself, okay, well, the garbage men are part of the sanitation union and the sanitation union is connected to these other municipal unions and they're connected to city hall and I vote for the mayor and, you know, I vote for the city council and I know some of these people you know, and I, and I knew a bunch of sanitation workers. So there's a human element to all of this. And there's a way in which I, as a voting citizen in New York City, had a say in all of this. And I might have hated it. And it might have been awful. And the, the subways were chronically delayed for the past, you know, I would say eight years that I was living in New York. But there was a human centered system of uh of contracts and of accountability that regulated those inefficient services. And I recognized the, the smart city model as being something that had not simply upgraded or added efficiencies, but that had taken the political sovereignty that resided in individuals and their elected officials and the old model that we're all used to, and had transferred that political sovereignty without ever announcing itself in these terms, but had transferred that political sovereignty to a very tiny group of technocratic experts who controlled the algorithms that did the optimization, that yielded the bulk data, which is what it was all about for them, right? Google didn't want to take over a city because it's interested in municipal governance, right? Google wanted raw, unmediated access to all of those people living in that neighborhood so that it could produce these algorithmic efficiencies that it could then sell on various uh, advertising and predictive markets. And that felt revolutionary to me. So, um, and I'm, a, I'm attached to the idea of self-government in a, because I'm a, you know, an American and I'm sentimentally attached to the idea of self-government and, and to having a say and what goes on around me. So I didn't like that. And um, that's in a sense where it started. Yeah, it's interesting because of course, like I, I think I was really asleep to first amendment concerns for a long time. And part of it was even the surveillance stuff, I'd always be kind of like, you know, yeah, there's probably a lot of surveillance going on, but you know, I, I it's funny. Cause I, I probably had a kind of a typically conservative view in that sense, which was, you know, well, um, if you're not cause, if you're not breaking the law, then you have nothing to worry about, which of course now I'm totally changed on. And, and, but I think the thing that really woke me up to is that it was surveillance in service of when, when it became surveillance in service of censorship, I think that raised my alarms in ways. I think people have been raising concerns about surveillance and even kind of surveillance, surveillance, surveillance. And you kind of go, I don't know. I mean, I give my finger when I go through the airport, you know, I have my credit cards everywhere. You can figure out where I live. You know, I, at one point we were like wanting to try to figure out if we could hide that. It's super, people are, you get docked. It's like, you can figure out where people live. I mean, but it's, it's when it started being used both for the censorship. And then also, I think a point that we haven't done enough with, and I'm curious about your view on too, uh, maybe unrelated, but just that, you know, um, it's not just the censorship, that the censorships that's going on is often done in service of disinformation. In other words, it's not the fact that Facebook and Twitter throttled 
information on Hunter Biden's laptop or COVID vaccine side effects or COVID origins. It's that those censorship efforts were then publicized through the, the mainstream corporate news media as further proof that that information was false, right? That it was part of the disinformation effort. So yeah, no, please go ahead. I would just, I would say there's no reason to call that disinformation. And we have a very good word for that that's existed for a long time, and it's propaganda. And what that is, is propaganda. And um, there are very specific uses that, uh, for propaganda, elucidated most brilliantly by Jacques Ellul in his book, uh, Propaganda, Formation of the Attitudes of Men. I'm going to screw up the title a bit, but a very brilliant book by a French Christian anarchist, uh, partisan from the Second World War about propaganda. And the reason why I don't call stuff like that disinformation is, A, that I think it becomes recursive. You know, it's like, you know, you're, you're doing disinformation. No, you're doing disinformation. Now, obviously, like, if the term has any meaning, you, Michael, are correct, and the other people are, are purely cynical, but it just sort of keeps the word in a kind of recursive circulation. And then also, um, and I, maybe this is really the same point, that in doing so, it's like nobody knows what we're talking about at some point. It's like yeah. I really struggled in what term to use because I was like, well, if I say counter disinformation, do I call it the disinformation complex or do I call it the counter disinformation complex? And, it's, it's, and the, the term itself is opaque for a reason. And it's opaque both because it is intended to serve as a vehicle of power and the opacity, like other forms of academic abstruseness, are you know vehicles for power. It's that. Yeah. And it's also that its origins are in the world of espionage. And the world of espionage um, makes enigmas, you know, its business is enigmas. And so, of course, it makes sense that it would be confusing. Um, but, you know, to your substantive point, you know, of course, I, I completely agree. And with something like Hunter Biden's laptop, um, I, I, to me, that's a very clear illustration of the fact that this is not simply about censorship, because it you didn't have to, um, first of all, there is no method of censorship that's that that requires that kind of vast organizational structure, right? So 50 former national security officials, virtually the entire upper ranks of the FBI, which had to sit on the fact that they knew the laptops were authentic since uh, 2019, the entire press establishment, um, you know, the all the top level officials in the Democratic Party. Um, and then, you know, as a point that I've seen you make, which is like a, a really telling point, the Aspen Institute calling for, um, you know, the, the revocation of what, what is it called? The Pentagon Papers standard. Yeah. The principle. I mean, that's not censorship in a, in any recognizable sense. It's something larger. It's something um, yeah. more assertive. And, um, you know, why are those 50 national security officials 
signing their names to this document. You'd think in a sort of narrow sense, you would think, doesn't that represent a risk for them? Don't they worry that when the truth comes out, as they know it will eventually, that this will reflect poorly on them? Doesn't Michael Hayden worry about that when he lends this sort of full-throated endorsement to Clint Watts and Hamilton 68? I mean, they know the truth. So why don't they worry about the truth coming out? They don't worry about the truth coming out because their premise is we control the truth and we can we can hop and skip from one massive propaganda operation to the next without being overly concerned about the truth as a sort of independent, autonomous uh, principle catching up with them because they ha- they're participating in a large, well-coordinated political power structure that exists specifically to um, enforce certain uh, ideas and punish others. You know, Jacob, one thing I want to push back on a little bit on your in your piece um, is this idea that sort of the punch, the kicker of the piece being in that this is the end of democracy, essentially. And I don't I don't think that that's wrong. But what I do think is that um, that that's so during the 19th, I'm sorry, during the 20th century, there was this sort of like technocratic control of media production. And, you know, there's the old Chomsky thesis for manufacturing consent that the elites had, uh, you know, certain uh, professional networks and social networks to be able to enable uh, in, in order to be able to lean on editors and reporters to report certain stories and not report other stories. The Pentagon paper being sort of the exception that proves the rule. Um, and now we're talking about entering into an era in which it's like, we'll probably still have the formal trappings of democracy and definitely elections and things like that. And some measure of what we believe to be um, protected rights to speech, but it's sort of like, it's sort of like the apps are running in the background. You know, it's like, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a technocratic and administrative control over the public discourse that we don't see because there's a couple of layers behind us. Well, all we see is the, the, the apps on the screen. Um, so it, it all appears to be hunky dory. But like, that's not a huge, there were like the last 20 years and the Gurry writes about this, the last 20 years, there was this period in which essentially they, they had, the elites had no gatekeepers to lean on. And it was from their perspective, chaos, bedlam, pandemonium, and they're reasserting in this sort of revolt of the elites way, they're reasserting control. But really what they're doing is just they're returning to the model of the 20th century in which, but instead of the gatekeepers being on the side of the producers of the news, the gatekeepers are on the side of those who control our visibility, or the, the, the visibility of the news into our news feeds. But it does seem as if it's like, maybe we didn't have, maybe this is how American democracy traditionally always has been, or at least through the better part of the 20th century. Um, and we're just kind of returning to that model with a more, you know, technologically sophisticated AI driven um uh apparatus so i i'm very glad to get that criticism i i think that it's um i mean i agree with almost everything you said so I, the first thing i would point out is just that i didn't intend the that final section to be um i'm not a determinist i'm not an historical determinist i don't you know i think choices matter there are contingencies um, 
and there's a wild card. So I don't think anything is set in stone. And, um, and I'm not sure where things are going to go from here. And I, I don't, don't intend to forecast, you know, nor am I any good people get frustrated because they say, well, what do you, what, what are you saying we should do about this? I'm like, I, I have no idea. You know, I'm a writer. I just, I'm telling you what I see. I, I'm not, um, that's not my bag. You know, there's like somebody else who can tell you what we should do about this. Um, I'm not sure. That being said, and I, I think Gurry's book is great. And um, I take your point. And I, and I really take your point about the fact that it was, this is one of the ironies that the reason why we have this uh, sentimental mythos about the mid 20th century American democracy uh, in part is because of very effective top-down control over the production of narrative, um, which was able to make that, you know, the sort of consensus and, and to, to enforce that consensus. On the other hand, um, I really do think we had a lot more of it then than we do now, largely for reasons of political economy. And, you know, this is where I... Um, you know, I feel like a bit of a Marxist in terms of how I understand, um, I understand the liberalism was an economic system of property rights as much as it was, um, an epistemological system about value pluralism or something like that. Right. Mid 20th century, uh, the political economy of the mid 20th century with broad-based regional, not just manufacturing, but a large, powerful private sector middle class no longer exists in this country. You know, a a powerful union protected uh, working class no longer exists in the same way in this country. Those were constitutive of the liberal democracy of the 20th century, every bit as much, if not more so, than the ideas about freedom of expression and and the ideas which in some way were, uh, you know, sat on top of those economic conditions. And so we have now a, you know, digitally controlled information economy that's had a regional hollowing out, uh, massive consolidation, and that favors a kind of extreme form of what maybe was always there in less developed or in latent form, but now favors a kind of extreme top-down control because so many jobs are dependent on so few platforms that are controlled by so few people, um, Mm. ultimately controlled by so few people. So the, the, underlying structural and economic conditions that supported the democracy that we're talking about um and and to whatever extent it was never quite as good or as as um as fully textured as it might have appeared certainly there was something to it and it it's no longer possible to go back to something like that because the ground is moved the fact that American in- intellectuals are now openly contemptuous of democracy is not new, right? Really yeah. not new. So 
In fact, yeah. it was in many ways much stronger, let's say, in the 1920s than it is now. What's new yeah. is that I think, you know, that very establishment public officials like Robert Reich are saying these kinds of things. That's what to me is newer. It's not the fact that you can find um, somebody writing for the New Republic or, um, you know, sort of liberal standard bearer publication, whatever that is now, probably not the New Republic anymore. It's not that you can find somebody there who's, um, you know, suspicious of the the rabble or, or who's, um, sees democracy as inherently weak and um, lacking the advantages of central planning or, or, you know, whatever line you want to take that down. Obviously, there's a long tradition of that. Uh, but the ways in which that sort of naked contempt for democratic norms has escaped the realm of sort of ideology and um, intellectualism and has become the language of the of officialdom signals a real change in my opinion you've reached the end of this episode of the free version of public's podcast to access the full version become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com
real.